welcome to the last thing I saw. Um, so let me let me introduce my my guest for this episode, uh, Shawnee Etala. Welcome. Thank you so much, Nick. I'm delighted to be here. And I'm I'm sure many viewers know viewers. <laughs> many many synesthetic uh, listeners uh, who can see and hear us uh, know you know know you through your through your writing. Um, and but I wonder if you could just say a bit about about what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a professor of English at Fordham University. I'm also a writer who writes about film, theater, and performance across media. Um, And I'm the author of a book called Method Acting and Its Discontents um, on American Psychodrama is the subtitle, and the co-author of a more recent book, a sort of weirder art book, co-authored with David Levine, the artist David Levine, called A Discourse on Method. Yes, and uh, I, I should say that I guess my initial contact with you was ha- having the pleasure of helping uh, edit an article about recessive acting, uh, which I think was, I guess, the general term um, to describe. I mean, I don't want to sum it up here. It's a film comment piece, so everyone should go read it uh, from, I think, 2017. or 2016, I think. Yeah. 2016. Okay, 2016. Even further ahead of the curve. <laughs> then. Um, and, you know, I thought just like a brilliant essay that does the thing you always want, which is like it puts words to what you've been seeing and you can send, then you can kind of understand what you've been seeing. And I had the same feeling with this, which I guess grew out of uh, your watching films uh, by Joanna Hogg. Uh, so I wonder if you could just talk a bit about how this came into be. So I should say that this is a book that I am working on for the University of Illinois Press and their Contemporary Film Directors series about Joanna Hogg that I have been very lucky to have uh, Nick Reed uh, in draft form. Um, And, you know, it came out of uh, some thinking that I had been doing actually previously about new ways of talking about acting and new ways of talking about realist acting, which is something that I've been engaged in for a number of years and also uh, was very much you know, an active kind of research topic for me when I wrote that article that Nick referred to on recessive acting. So maybe it would just be helpful to say, you know, I started out as a theater scholar and also, I mean, long, long ago, I, I started out as an actor myself who was interested in writing about the history of American method acting and all its weird twists and turns and also in theorizing um, what this strange cultural object that we call method acting is. And so that's the research that went into my first book. And since then, you know, I've been really trying to think more about different contemporary styles of acting and also like how we can theorize acting in relation to other aesthetic forms, because I have this sense that, you know, that we actually have a really impoverished critical discourse for talking about acting um, in general, Mm -hmm. you know, in contrast to talking about, say, like other elements of um, cinematic art. And so that's sort of been where my focus as a writer and a researcher has been for the last couple of years. Yeah. So in, you know, I, I got really obsessed with uh, Joanna Hogg's films during the pandemic, as many did, because of course, you know, the souvenir part one came out in 2019 and then part two came out in 2021. And so, you know, in that time, um, the souvenir part one was actually the first Hogg film that I'd ever seen. And then, you know, I went back and uh, became like totally engrossed by her project and these five films that she has made thus far. And, you know, I was really, really fascinated in what she was doing with acting and what she was the way that she used actors in her films, um, which struck me as like totally singular and like something like nothing I'd ever seen before. Although, you know, it was related to other filmmakers projects, but seemed to me to really be quite different in a lot of important ways. And so, you know, I started to think about like how to how to talk about what she was doing and the kind of acting that was that was happening in her films and how I felt that they were films that were in a way about acting, you know, in this in this really singular way. So yeah. By way of this really great article by a writer, Yana Prickrell. She's great. She's she's great. And and she wrote a great piece in the New York Review of Books about, about Hogg when the Souvenir Part 1 came out. And she just made this kind of observation that I thought was really interesting, which was that, you know, that it's the combination of the of the style of Hogg's films, you know, tend to be still camera, tend to use diegetic sound and, and available light, although the souvenir departs from this in lots of ways. The combination of sort of that style and 
what Crickwell described as the loose, uh, spontaneous, naturalist acting that you might see in Mike Lee or Cassavetti's films. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting. And in a way, um, you know, to me, it felt both right and wrong, actually. <laughs> like I like because I think that I mean, I can I can see I can see definitely what she means by comparing the attention to psychological naturalist acting and to layers of performance in in the character acting that happens in these films. I can see how that relates to Lee and Cassavetes, but it also seems to me that what she's doing is really different. And yeah. and so I was tr- I was trying to figure out like what it is that's so different. And what I realized was that you know there's a real difference between filmmakers who tell us that they're showing us everything. Like, tell us that they're mm-hmm. showing us what there is to see. Right. Which is how I would describe Lee and Cassavetes and the way they film actors. Like, they're showing us the thing, the character, the thing, the thing that we're supposed to see. And filmmakers who actually show us repeatedly that they're not showing us what there is to see. Like, they're not showing us all there is. And they, they point to the fact that there's more that we're not seeing. And Hogg struck me as like virtuosic at this, at showing us that she's not showing us everything that there is to see. And, you know, that that creates its own kind of like spectatorial desire that's really powerful and attachment. And, you know, so I, I was thinking about this and, and it led me to this, um, this actually quite old and, you know, hoary, or at least, at least <laughs> in some ways of art historical uh, concept of absorption that, you know, has, the term comes from this 1976 book by, by the uh, venerable art critic and scholar Michael Fried called Absorption and Theatricality. That's about, uh, you know, this shift in 18th century French painting where painters started representing figures who turned away from the beholder. Mm-hmm. So you started seeing, you know, many figures who were engrossed in some kind of activity that was not wholly accessible to the beholder. And he contrasts this to like the decorative mode of um, the Rococo, where there's this kind of sense of exhibition and, and we're, as the viewer of, of those paintings, we have the sense that it's all there for us. Mm-hmm. And, then he, and then he contrasts this with the, with the absorptive art. Uh, which, you know, there are lots of different styles of, um, including what he calls the pastoral style, which is actually just about like these immersive natural scenes where the viewer or what he calls the beholder feels themselves just surrounded by the world of the painting as if they were surrounded by a natural landscape. Mm. So there are lots of different modes of absorption. It's not like it's just about people like not looking directly towards the viewer. And it's a really, it's like a really flexible concept that he relates to like new ideas about aesthetic autonomy and subjectivity and that he contrasts, he contrasts this notion of absorption with theatricality, which would be the direct address to the viewer, a sense that the film is, excuse me, that the painting is exhibiting itself to the, to the viewer. Yeah. Putting, putting that idea in this, in the, in like a cinematic context, that was so interesting to me. And you said that it's kind of a, as far as theories go, an older theory in a way, um, as far as art history goes, but applying it to a film, I felt, you know, really interesting and fresh. And I just, I really liked that idea of how how an actor and a director are directing attention in a way through the focus of a character within the, the mise-en-scene. So that, that's somehow part of how, how it's working. And I'm really interested in, in how the idea of absorption contrasts theatricality because you could argue as well that Hogg's framing you know, is that kind of almost silent movie framing where you are giving us a big frame and within that- Proscenium, yeah, yeah, yeah. The proscenium, that's where the action's mm-hmm. happening. I mean, that's not the way mm-hmm. that you mean the theatrical, mm-hmm. but she is setting up, you know, these mm-hmm. kind of quiet theater <laughs> in a way where you are you are an observer, Definitely. but not, not acknowledging as other directors do that that's what she's doing. So all these like different uh, currents that are going on are, are so interesting. No, actually, thank you so much for that because that is- that's really helpful in explaining. Um, so a, a crucial element of this concept is Freed was actually not contrasting absorption to theater um, because he actually gets the concept from Denis Diderot, who was writing a lot about absorption in theater and um, writing about precisely what you're talking about, like the the tableau form, which was you know this crucial form in painting in the 18th century, but also in theater where actors would freeze in a, in a moment of dramatic tension or 
they wouldn't actually it freeze is sort of the wrong way of putting it. That's sort of a contemporary. They would they would they would pose in a moment that expressed a particularly dramatically climactic moment. And that was, you know, called the tableau in in theater. That for Diderot is and for Fried is like that is an absorptive moment. And, and the, what distinguishes it from the self-exhibition of theatricality is that the actors don't, and, and you know, the, the mise-en-scene doesn't let you know that it knows that you're watching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's like the distinction is that, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it's in some way extending the fiction that you're not watching it. So the, the, like, the famous phrase of Diderot's is, is this instruction to actors to act as if the curtain never rose. Mm-hmm. So that, so that is, I, I loved actually, I love thinking about this in terms of Hogg's films, because I think you're quite right that she, so often she sets up these kind of tableau shots, but there's something within the scene that we're, that we're not privy to. So, you know, one example that I use in the piece is from, is from Unrelated, uh, her first film from, from 2007, where you know, we watch this scene of the characters in this square in in Siena, where they just sort of act out this tiny little drama, this very minor drama that sort of expresses the whole like relational dynamic of the film and of the characters. Mm-hmm. But we're we're far enough away that we you know we sort of get it in this kind of abstract mode, as if we were watching a tableau in in eighteenth century theater. I and that's this really crucial thing that there's like it's not that these films don't know that they're being watched <laughs> it's that there's mm-hmm. something there's something that she's doing internally where they don't let us know that she knows that we know <laughs> <Don't worry. laughs> right yeah <laughs> yeah no and I, I like i think you described that that the tableau as a whole that there's naturalistic detail when you're examining it uh, scrutinizing it but as a tableau it gets it's there's almost an abstraction mm-hmm, to it mm-hmm. uh, which for some reason reminds me of something that Chantal Ackerman once said in terms of long takes, mm-hmm. uh, which she said she, she really likes to film things. Um, and I think it was specifically about, I think, Sued, um, or maybe it's the other side. I think it's the other side. And she's, she's filming like a wall in Mexico. It might even be the wall. And she keeps filming it, filming, filming. She says, I like to film so that it's very concrete and you're examining everything about it. And then it turns abstract. And then it turns back to concrete and then it goes back to abstract. Mm. This kind of idea that, yeah, you're the, the more you're watching the different ways it's it's active. Mm. I love that. I mean, yeah, because I guess that's another aspect is is holding on these scenes so that there is. And not to um, continue digressing, but yeah. I, I did have a question yeah. about how this theory, you know, interacts with even older like film theory. I'm curious about the spectators like agency in these situations. And that will also kind of tie into the the desire that setting up these tableaus creates, which is it definitely creates a desire for me. Mm -hmm. But then I wonder about viewers who like, aren't into hog. I mean, maybe we should just forget about them. Uh, <laughs> Who are they? Talking about. <laughs> Who are they? Um, but you know what I mean? Like that's, that's yeah. something it's like, I want I always want to show these movies to, to, to people. And then I always look worry like, Oh shoot. Like, how is it going to work in terms of, of attention um, yeah. and like the different modes of attention that, that people will bring. I mean, that, I don't know, that's mm-hmm. maybe neither here nor there since it's just kind of like an outside parameter. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the, I guess what I'll say is that like one of the, you know, in terms of those old film debates about like, you know, who's in charge of the spectator's yeah. look and all that stuff. You know, I think what attracts me to to thinking in terms of absorption is that I actually think it's like, actually think it's a very flexible concept that can actually accommodate a lot of different formal methods. And the point that I sort of spin out in the article on Hogg is that some of these techniques, like for instance, in her use in Souvenir and Souvenir Part 2, her editing, her just use of the cut, which is so, um, mm-hmm. so much a part of that, those films and, and so crucial to understanding them. You know, so that would typically be thought of, right, as anti-absorptive, right? Because it like takes mm-hmm. you out. You're not allowed to, you know, linger and luxuriate in the scene, you're not even allowed to finish it sometimes. She just cuts it before even sometimes a sentence really finishes or she'll cut a song before the musical phrase finishes. So, you know, I, I think that we're used to, at least I'm used to thinking about that 
in a kind of Brechtian way, right? Where, where you're, um, you're sort of jolted out of the fiction and you become aware of its constructedness. And that, at least in, you know, in a like Brechtian theory, is supposed to enable you to, to kind of like be the master of it as a spectator, mm-hmm. right? To like mm-hmm. fully understand it and grasp it because it's, because it's been cut and framed and you're not, you know, just along for the ride in a, in a kind of, you know, what Brecht thought was a kind of like trance-like state of identification. So that would, you know, typically we would think of that as the opposite of what I'm talking about when I talk about absorption. But what I think (laughs) is that what happens in those moments is that we sort of become aware of, for me anyways, of this kind of internally directed logic of the film and the hand of the filmmaker that we that we feel is actually enabling us to attach more fully because Again, we understand that in some way, this film has not been created for us. It's like it's Mm -hmm. there and there's something inaccessible to us. And that might even be like the logic of the cut or or um, or the rest of the song. Um, You know, it could be something like in like um, in terms of the content. And for me, you know, what that does is that that creates the like the desire for the leaning into the world because I don't, I don't feel like I'm being, I don't feel like it's all being presented there for my, mm-hmm. you know, delectation. Yeah. Um, so yeah. This, yeah. No, yeah. I see that. Yeah. 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 Um, and um, I mean, actually this, I mean, this might be um, a, a, a moment for, for like an, another part in, in, in the, um, in, in, in the argument, which is just sort of thinking about, what distinguishes Hogg from other filmmakers, you know, who might also, you know, uh, set up a situation where you can, you're, you can kind of attend at your leisure. But I, I, I was interested that, you, you know, th- that distinction, because that's a huge thing for me. I mean, obviously names that come to mind and, and you mentioned, you know, it's like Picha Pong, mm-hmm. Ethical and, and Simon Liang, um, because I, I mean, I love those, those film filmmakers and, and, but I felt that Hogg is doing something even different from, from them. I, I agree with you in, in that. And I also feel that she's somehow, this is going to sound terrible. I sort of feel that she's kind of perfecting something that there have been a lot of rough drafts mm. uh, in working towards what she does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she's sort of, you know, well appreciated now, but I just, it's been kind of maddening to see her not <laughs> appreciate it for like, you know, about a two, three films in, you know, it's, it's still like, uh, just in terms of, even in terms of distribution, I think like two or three were just kind of released at the same time because they hadn't been released in the U.S. Uh, yet, you know, yeah. uh, at one point. Um, and 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 I mean, what I'm thinking about is just, for lack of a better word, the the kind of slow cinema kind of idea that that things are unfolding before you, which is very different from what she does. But the general idea of just watching something unfold like that, I think everything that you're writing about is how she is perfecting that um, yeah. that space. But I wonder if yeah. you could talk about how how it's distinct from what other people are doing, like from other successful yeah. um, ent- entries in kind of like non or less kind of montage propelled uh, films like, you know, like a pitch upon or, mm-hmm, or side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and this is, you know, I've been thinking, I've been thinking a lot about this and, and, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about, about a pitch upon in, in, in these terms, because I think, um, you know, there's, there's, a way, so I, I think that a pitch up Pong's films actually um, can be well described by Fried's notion of pastoral absorption. Oh, well, yeah. You know, where there's kind of a sense of um, a sense of expansiveness in a world that that sort of g- moves around you that doesn't that doesn't come to meet you, but that kind of invites you to go to meet it. Um, you know, so like we have a sense of the alterity of the world. We have a sense of its otherness. And, you know, often that's augmented by these, the quote unquote supernatural or, you know, or, or the not strictly, at least what we think of in a Western context as, as realist elements. Mm-hmm. And I think what Hogg is doing actually, you know, is, is there's some of that and her use of, you know, natural landscapes, I think is really interesting to think of too. Um, but I think she's really... Push, following and pushing in a very different kind of way, a very European tradition of realism. And it's a dramatic tradition and it has to do with the acting and the kind of acting and the kind of characters and the kind of stories that she's telling. I actually think 
you know, and this is something that people sometimes sound a little apologetic about when they talk about hog, right? It's like, these are all about, you know, white, upper class British people, um, you know, but I, but I think there's a way to think about this as actually a, a kind of expansion of, of a very, yes, white European dramatic tradition and that she's, that she's abstracting and reconfiguring. So I'm thinking, you know, about, about the kind of acting that we see in these films, you know, which is this really virtuosic psychological acting that very much, you know, comes from a European tradition of thinking about psychology and acting. Mm -hmm. And that that is sort of the, that's sort of the material that she's reconceiving. So, you know, that's one way that I would talk about, I would talk about the difference is that, is that I think that there is, and this is why, again, like coming back to this comparison that Prickroll made between, between her films and, and Lee and Cassavetes, who, are also very much within, and I think in in many ways are m- much more traditional in their use of a you know Euro American dramatic tradition. And you know I think you can see though that 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 Hogg is is really abstracting that in a way that they I think are in many ways extending it, uh, pushing it, but very much within a certain idea about what drama is, you know, which has to do with Mm -hmm. conflict, (laughs) you know, it has to do with, um, you know, the distinction between a social self and a private self, you know, all these, Mm -hmm. these themes that the films, you know, turn into kind of dramatic principles, least and Cassavetes, not to collapse them, obviously they're different, but like, (laughs) I think that they, they are both doing this and, you know, and Hogg is, Hogg is, I think really, pushing to abstract those things yeah no i mean it's funny i happened i happened to have watched uh, naked just because i wanted to <laughs> feel extra like grotty and grungy for a moment <laughs> but yeah and I, it's absolutely true it has a spontaneity that feels distinct from a lot of like kind of more conventional drama i guess one, one thing they have in common i guess is kind of a delight in the in the language mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. and in lee's films it feels like there is a kind of outward pride in just kind of people's ability to express themselves very colorfully. <laughs> and I love this about his movies. I think he, he does always want to kind of display that. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And that's, you know, part of what makes that character, David Thewlis's character, mm-hmm. make you not want to throw something at the TV, you know, um, <laughs> is just the fact that he's, you're suddenly on these crazy elaborate pontifications about, you know, the universe and he's spinning these theories in front of you. Um, and I mean, I think that stuff happens in in the souvenir as well, but it's it's not like a display um, in, in the same way. And, it, and it's not, there's also something more like theatrical stage wise, like with Lee, like definitely parts of Naked feel like, you know, a series of like blackout sketches mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or something. But in souvenir, I mean, part of a huge attraction for me in say Tom Burke's character, and I definitely want to hear your thoughts about him um, is just his his eloquence, which also coincidentally counteracts some of his uh, you know more sinister qualities. Yeah. It's a, he's almost like mesmerizing within the film, but also for for the, for the audience. But it's not for us. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I guess I'm sort of, I guess I'm being like hype man here, the, <laughs> the reactor of, of things, but the, I don't know those, but I just wanted to say, yeah, that I definitely see the distinction you're drawing. Yeah. I love, I love Tom Burke's performance. I love Tom Burke as an actor. I think he's really kind of a genius, um, but you yeah. know, I mean, one of the, it's, it's like, it's kind of the most obvious way to illustrate this, but you know, we go through you know, one long sequence, we could divide into scenes, um, where we're introduced to that character of Anthony in the souvenir without ever seeing his face, mm. you know? And even in the for his first scene with Julie, the, you know, when they go uh, the, for the first time to a, you know, posh hotel bar is what it looks like, we only see about a quarter of his face until the very end of the scene. And this is something, you know, Hogg does a lot. Uh, you know, she she shoots from an angle where we can only see part of of the characters faces or or we're seeing something that they're we have a hint of something that they're doing but we don't see all of what they're doing and that you know that's this kind of like withholding that is for me is so engrossing to you know as a spectator to watch yeah well that's i just that's that's kind of how you kick off yeah uh, kick off the book which is great the turning away yeah yeah you know i think that one thing that's really compelling to me about tom burke's performance is you have a sense at certain points that he's performing for Julie, but really you have a sense that this is a kind of like, there's a kind of like deep acting going on where he's performing for himself. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's like there's yeah. this, there's a hermetic quality even to the internal 
performance that he's giving mm. into the internal social performance, which of course we could say has something to do with the, the open secret of his addiction, but mm. is, you know, feels like it's, it's actually sort of the structuring element of that character. And, and I think, you know, that that is a, that's actually a real challenge for an actor to do that, you know, and have it feel, you know, to not distinguish between a social performance and an interior self. Like mm. you have, you have a sense in that character, that those two things are totally fused, that there's this kind of, there is this other self, but we never, we really, you know, we, it's not like he's showing us the distinction between those. It's like, we can only sort of infer it in these moments, um, for instance, like moments of, you know, violence or moments of, um, I'm thinking of the withdrawal scene in particular, mm-hmm. like, but, but it's, it's, he's never showing us that self-directly it's only indirectly that we see it yeah and, and it's so fascinating to have julie mm-hmm. you know pretty openly this is it's it's the story of like a naive narrator <laughs> right right uh, right however much she's kind of hiding it from herself or, or or looking away from from that fact in front of her but i was wondering actually how does that fit in a little into the idea of absorption and I don't mean like naive, like in a pejorative sense. I just mean literally she comes from a sheltered background and is looking at things through a certain lens that isn't skeptical in the same way that like, for example, Patrick is, who is just like, you know, this virtuosic cynic and mm-hmm. <laughs> about everything. How does that function in the film, her openness? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I mean, and, you know, this is where in the in the piece um, that I'm working on, you know, I bring in the psychoanalytic theorist, Joan Kopjek, who mm-hmm. reads Freed's concept of absorption actually as an aesthetic demonstration of love. And the idea there is that what draws the lover to the love object is a sense of its ungraspability, the sense of that it's different from itself, that it's not there for you, just like the, the paint, the absorptive painting is not there for you. So, so I think that, and I actually think that it, I argue that it works. It's a, it's a theory that works really well in analyzing the souvenir films um, because yeah. what we're watching there is, you know, Julie's attachment to this, you know, to this mystery, to this person that she can't grasp. And I think that that, you know, that is also, that is also what the films are doing aesthetically. Tom Burke said something amazing in an interview. And this is like, they did this mid pandemic interview hmm. that is kind of fascinating to watch. And now I'm forgetting, gosh, who, who, like what organization sponsored it. But where he said that something he realized about Anthony and Julie is that the character of Anthony identifies really early on. And this, you know, you see this in the, in the first scene where they meet in the film, her, her fascination with rot or decay, hmm. you know, in the fiction of the film, this is, he comes upon this when she's talking about the, the student film she originally wants to make about, about Sunderland. But Tom Burke sort of talked about how he, he realized that that was actually this key to Julie's character that Anthony understood. Like Anthony saw that Julie was fascinated with rot. And in some way that is what he's he uses mm. to hook her, you know, because, mm-hmm. and I, I mean, I, I think that's like a brilliant comment, but I also think it, ex- what it sort of unlocks for me is, you know, that there is from the beginning, this kind of complicity there, right? Like, mm-hmm. like she, she may be, I mean, certainly is like looking away from the fact of his addiction, but there's something in him that is this kind of, you know, unspeakable, you know, un readable thing <laughs> that that she that she hooks into and that's mm-hmm. where the fascination comes from yeah it, it is pretty amazing how that that kind of unlocks a lot, a lot of things yeah his his understanding goes pretty deep and yeah i mean i guess also just a moment where it's worth saying i mean it's hard to describe but hogg's method of directing mm-hmm. and creating this space uh, where the actors can kind of grow their interpretation. Mm-hmm. And when I interviewed Hogg, she, she said something like, I sort of feed them a lot of stuff and they digest it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then they, they do something. So it's, oh, okay, so that's that's the result of Tom Burke digesting, you know, and like figuring it out. But the, I mean, the idea of love, that that's something that you talk about in terms of filmmaking itself and film itself, right? Yeah. That's something I, I like, like it's a magic trick. I'm kind of going to see if you can <laughs> describe, describe that yeah. because if I try to summarize it, it's not going to work. <laughs> okay. I'll try. Okay. Um, so, and you'll have to stop if I go on, if I go on to talk about this, but you know, no, no. and that's really what I think part two of the souvenir is about. It's about Julie trading the love object of Anthony for the love object of film itself. 
So in the, in the Joan Kopchak book that I'm talking about that I'm working from, which by the way is called Imagine There's No Woman, which is, which is a great book that people who are, you know, have any interest in theory at all should, should read. But she has this amazing interpretation of Cindy Sherman's Untitled Film Stalls, you know, that like famous photography series from the 70s, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where Sherman photographs herself in these, um, what seem like kind of stereotypical um, mid-century Hollywood cinema female characters. And, you know, typically those those have been read as, as about a woman trapped in stereotypes, right? Like that's usually, that's like the kind of like basic simplistic reading of those photographs. And Kopchak says, no, no, that's not what they're about at all. They're about a woman's they're, they're, they're demonstrations of a woman's love for film. Like the love of, there's a love object in these photographs and it's film itself. Mm. And what we're seeing is the ways that we, I mean, she expands this to be like a general theory of subjectivity where the only way for us to feel ourselves to be subjects is through our attachment to a love object. So actually it's only through attachment to the object that we experience our own subjectivity. So I love this that I, I use this to talk about, you know, acting and like the role, because I think that like Sherman's film stills are really, are really amazing, like to use for, to use, uh, to think about acting with. But I also, in so many ways, I think that what Hogg is doing with the film within a film in the souvenir part two is really analogous to Sherman's untitled film stills, you know, so that Julie's graduation film, as we see it in the premiere in the film, you know, is this, pastiche of historical film styles, right, that we see Julie in. Mm-hmm. And so I use Kopchak's reading of, of Sherman to argue that this is this is actually like about Julie finding herself and her love for film. And that it's what's really important and you know in that film within a film in that in that sequence is that you know we sort of see her experiencing herself within her attachment to these filmic worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of manifest in, in this. And, and, and I'd like that you distinguish that the film that we're seeing is, it's not really necessarily the film that's projected or whatever that right. exactly means. It, right. It's, it is sort of this literal projection from, right. Right. Uh, I guess hog. Right. <laughs> um, right. Right. And it also, I mean, it's like also her, this is so, this is like, Bugs me out, but it's also it's also her her own graduation film, Caprice, which mm. you can watch on YouTube. Um, yeah, Matilda Swinton. <laughs> yes, with Matilda Swinton, <laughs> um, which is a great little short film. It's like really, yeah. it's really delightful. Um, yeah. But you know, she also is remixing some of the images from that, and some of the even like the structure of that is remixed in this little film. So I really do feel like this is like sort of like about the filmmaker coming into her own through her experience of herself, like in film. Yeah, no, I mean, Caprice, I, <laughs> it has this kind of particularly like 80s pep to it. Somehow. <laughs> I guess anything that has to do with like cover models, you know, somehow <laughs> makes me think of, of 80s, but it's it's just kind of a, a sweet, it's almost like a cartoon idea too, that yeah. she's like, it's like duck amuck or yeah. something, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, she's able to, to step in there and see the, the what, what really goes on. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, what I also like is, is the way you argue that the, the autobiographical shading of the way it's informed by her autobiography, how that interacts with realism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a whole thing that I kind of struggle with. Uh, I mean, what realism means, you know, you also bring in the just the, the reality effect idea of how that's at play in there. How does that function just in terms of it being autobiographical? And how does that enhance or, or activate the, the realism? Mm. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, these words are really moving targets, right? It's like very, <laughs> yeah. it's very, you know, and they're so, they're so freighted and, and it's very hard to say what we mean. For me, turning to absorption in a way is a way to not like just talk about realism, right? Which is like, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a way to talk about something other than the genre or mode of realism, whatever that is. The way that Kopchak talks about realism actually is just that it's this general mode of modernity. It includes melodrama, like it all, like basically all the forms of modern art can be Um, put under the rubric of realism because what realism is on a basic level is like secularity. It's like the secular world. It's like, so for her, it's just like, and you know, the argument that she makes, and of course, you know, she's a, she's um, a Lacanian theorist. She uses Jacques Lacan um, is that, you know, once the position of, 
the all-seeing agent, i.e. God, <laughs> is vacated. Like once there's no longer an idea of an external figure who is all-seeing, what you get instead is the notion of the all-seeing world, like a world in which everything is seen. Mm. And that for her is, that's just what realism is. Like that, that there's a world, that a sense of the world in which everything could be seen. So what's complicated about this though, is that of course, like within that world, the all-seeing world, the world that itself can see everything, we of course do not see everything ever. <laughs> um, but even, you know, in a, in a micro level, we don't see everything. We can never, for instance, like see ourselves. And so that's where you get this, you know, this dynamic of the, you know, the like ungraspability of the self and the object, because, you know, even though we have this idea that the world itself is all seeing, we can never really locate our position within it because we can't see ourselves. Which is, which is why I hate, we hate Zoom. Which is why we hate Zoom. <laughs> well, I mean, Zoom, like talk about an aggressive denial of that, right? Like they even like, I even, someone just even told me that they, they try to, or the way that Zoom shows you yourself is the way that you would see yourself in a mirror. So that, so that you're not like distracted by this inverse way that the world right. actually sees you. Like, it's so weird. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so realism, realism, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah. Well, no, I mean, just when I was, as you know, as I was, I was regretting immediately talking about realism. I know it's such a, it's such a um, sometimes I think that realism really just means I had an emotional response to it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm, it felt it's relatable. I, yeah, exactly. You know, so, and so I, I hope I didn't. It's kind of slip into that no, because, no. but but in a sense, there's something encoded in that, which is that it's yeah, it's it's like realistic to me. It's a real. It's a reality that I wish to recognize and and that will recognize, and then it, it moves me. But yeah, it's 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 a kind of a slippery thing and but yeah as, as you said the absorption is is kind of operating kind of a different vector mm -hmm, uh, that, mm -hmm. that's going on there yeah so I, i've been thinking a lot also about you know there's this little this little section of of um Deleuze's cinema one where he talks about the action image which he associates completely with with kazan with Ilya kazan um mm -hmm. and you know there he uses the term realism to talk just about like a theory of method acting on film, which I think is actually kind of interesting and useful, although I, it's also kind of a red herring, but that was helpful for me in thinking about, okay, so what is this particular Kazanian kind of realism that differs from this Hoggian realism that I'm talking about, or this Hoggian absorptive mode that I'm, that I'm talking about. Um, and that might, I mean, if we wanted to, that could, that could segue us into talk of, talking about the other film that we oh, both yes, were excited about. Admiring, <laughs> yeah. admiring the, the transition there. Um, to absolutely. Wanda. Yeah. Yay, Wanda. Yay, Wanda. Yeah. Um, a, a movie that just, each time I watch it, I, I, I feel like I haven't watched it before. I don't know. It's really one of those movies. They're just, it's a, it's almost a movie I have trouble remembering in a fixed way mm -hmm. because each time I watch it, I'm, you know, not to use a cliche, but I'm on the journey with her again and sort of yeah. experiencing it, uh, it, it anew. Um, but yeah, I, you know, yeah, you, you were saying in, in email that that's kind of a very interesting point. Um, I, mean, I guess it came out in 1970 and it's um, Loden's, her first feature that, that she directed. Um, how does that yeah. plug into what, what you were just talking? Yeah. So, right. So, I mean, I am a huge fan of Wanda's. Many of us are. Um, and mm -hmm. so I actually, in, in rewatching it for this conversation, I was struck at the connections that I see between what Loden was doing and what Hogg is doing, actually. Like, I think you could, I think oh, you cool. could really think about that. But the point of comparison that, that seems most relevant to me is that, you know, so if in what I previously called like the Mike Lee Cassavetes mode or um, which I do think is a version of the Kazanian mode of drama, mm. you know, where you see sort of there's a there's a scene that has a psychological build, you see a cause and effect, and you see kind of the whole of the scene unfold within that cause and effect. So Deleuze has this great um, kind of contemptuous phrase for it where he calls it the great global mission. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that, but that's, you know, that's the Stanislavskian like super objective, right? Mm -hmm. That's so important to Kazan, right? That, that there's sort of like one 
super objective or as you know he would sometimes call it the action of the character and of the scene you know mm-hmm. that that then each beat or bit of the scene leads to this one driving action in in the parlance of american method acting right like that you know this you could this is usually expressed as an active verb so like what the actor's doing in the scene is you know to convince her or you know to um, hide the truth or, you know, there's like one sort of like active verb that the actor does. And Deleuze makes the comment that this actually structures, this is the structure of Kazan's films. Like this, the act, that acting idea determines the whole structure. Hmm. So you can, I think, quickly see how this differs from what Loden is doing, mm-hmm. you know, which is also, I mean, her performance in that film, I think it's, it definitely participates in a sort of history of naturalism in acting, but it's the history that I'm interested in, which is, which is this history of absorption, which is more about this kind of dropping into attachment with a character. And it has very little to do with a kind of narrative build or a particularly definable active verb or a succession of events that lead to reactions. It actually has very little to do with that sort of dramatic structure that Kazan turned into and and other American acting teachers turned into the structure of the acting itself. So instead, you know, you have this character who's at once completely compelling and convincing, but also, I mean, truly illegible in terms of her quote unquote motivations. I mean, it's it's almost, you could almost read that performance as sort of a direct refutation of the tenets of American method acting, which is that, you know, you have to have a, a, a somewhat legible motivation for the character in order for the performance to be convincing and compelling yeah you know the the opacity of that character why that character is doing what she's doing is foregrounded from the very beginning it's kind of ironic because like in the context of the times you know it's you could say she's kind of dropping out Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) in in a way i mean effectively out of the role that that she's you know just happens not to be like you know in a counter-cultural way that we recognize from the time but that's what i felt somehow when i was watching it this time is that it's as if there's a scene going on and that she's in the scene and then it, she just sort of walks off. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, that's kind of, her, that's kind of her, her, her MO here. And you kind of, even, even the delivery and, and the audio is really interesting the way that I feel like we're almost barely picking up what she's saying. Mm-hmm. And, and again, the, the, that kind of feeds into the idea that, you know, she's not in the scene for us or she's mm-hmm. not speaking those lines for us. And, I mean, there's something painful about the detachment as well, which is, you know, mm-hmm. I think of this this cut early on where very, very, very beginning, she she goes to this bar and has like a beer, you know, mm-hmm. um, and they cut to a guy who says, I'll, I'll take care oh, of that. Yes. Oh my and, God. and then they cut to her. She says nothing. She just like covers her head like, yeah. All right. You know? yeah, here we go. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, next cut is next morning in the motel room. And there's just so, so much that she's, she's able to do there as, as an actor and just as, as a director, you know, mm-hmm. just constructing like that. Mm-hmm. Um, she doesn't need to make that the whole movie. And, and then she just kind of continues to kind of drift after that. You know, there's a sense that, that I think we have, at least that I have in watching Wanda and watching Loden as Wanda, that, you know, that there's something in her that's actually not in the scene, right? We have mm. this, you know, that, that is like not, wholly diegeticized, like to use that phrase, right? That's like Mm -hmm. not wholly of the world of the scene. And that, I mean, I think is the kind of apprehension of her subjectivity that is what makes this character so compelling and so moving, right? Is that we have this sense that there's even a kind of internal like turning away Mm -hmm. from the world as it presents itself to her, as it positions her, as it defines her, you know, that we can only infer from these kind of like negative moments, right? We never see her illustrate that other person. We just kind of see in this, in these moments of negation or resistance or refusal, you know, which could be the moments as you described, right? Where she like just sort of walks out, (laughs) you know, she's just sort of like not there or, you know, that, that early scene at the divorce court where she just kind of refuses to to play along well she refuses the conflict in a way yeah she refuses the conflict exactly no exactly exactly so that's i mean and maybe that's actually the best illustration of this right like in a you know she refuses drama <laughs> like she won't yeah. like she won't play along with the drama yeah and she refuses a dramatic structure that would position her in a particular way. And so, you know, I think you can see elements of that in a lot of Hogg's female protagonists. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of, you know, I'm thinking of, 
Catherine Wirth's amazing performance in Unrelated, um, oh, which yeah. I think is really genius. I mean, a very different kind of character, of course. And, but there's, there's, I think, similarly, you know, a sort of sense of her kind of turning away from the play as it wants to unfold her. And, you know, and she sort of has to come to terms with what that means in, in the film. But also, you know, I, I think that you could also connect that to just the cinematic structure of Hogg's films and, you know, the way that they kind of uh, resist our, you know, our total understanding. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when maybe one, for me, like crucial technique that I haven't mentioned yet in Hogg's films is this scene that happens in both Unrelated and Archipelago where what would ostensibly be a dramatic climax happens mm-hmm. off camera. Um, so we can right. only hear it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. right. And unrelated, this is the, you know, the fight between Oakley and his dad um, that sort of precipitates this whole fracturing of Anna, the main character's relationship with this teenager named Oakley. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then in, in archipelago, it's the, it's the confrontation between the mother and father on the telephone, you know, which you know, you right there, you can see what Hogg's doing with drama. And there's this kind of resistance to there's, a, there's an evocation of but also a kind of resistance to the assumption of drama, which is that, you know, we would see that moment that that would be the climax, <laughs> that, that would be that would be the moment of spectatorial engagement. And instead, we watch these two children and, you know, their sort of family retainer uh, at the dinner table overhearing their mother scream at their father on the phone. And it's, you know, it's like, it's like by far the most emotionally high pitched moment in the entire film. And Mm -hmm. we apprehend it, you know, from a distance, there's this kind of sense that we actually can't access or that, that we're, that we're not access. We're not meant to access, you know, the full, scope of that moment it's not being presented to us mm-hmm. and and at the same time there's there's a way in, in which there's something familiar about that in a mm-hmm. sense it's a staging that feels does feel familiar to, to like a, some family dinner right. you know? <laughs> right. um, so in that sense it's like may, maybe the original or maybe you know the conventional method of staging that wasn't really going to activate something in a viewer it's it's something more like more like this you know i mean there's this yeah. some way where for example in this one you might feel the the discomfort, the, the sh- I don't know, shame of mm-hmm. it, or, or yeah, you know, yeah. all, all these other things can come into play that um, the more you know direct, uh, openly acknowledged scene might might do. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, yeah, of course, the other thing being, um, and I, you, I think you also mentioned this, that we hear one side of that phone conversation as well, you know, yeah. and that's also something that comes up in the souvenir and. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I really am intrigued by like thinking about Wanda again. I'm kind of obsessed with, like I said, mm-hmm. anyone who likes Wanda is, is obsessed with Wanda. Um, yeah. But it's sort of the same thing with, with Hogg. You know, like I felt like Hogg's films, yeah, weren't totally recognized. Maybe in some ways aren't totally recognized. There's like this built-in disappointment mm-hmm. because there's a two-part to Souvenir. So now already we're going to be disappointed that she did the culminating work you know mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's like, same with Wanda like I don't think it's just like this one-off intriguing portrait I'll go ahead and say I think it's like a foundational work of whatever you want to call it, like 1970s American cinema that we mm-hmm. all love do you mm-hmm. know what I mean like mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. 1970 this is it's it's huge yes and I guess it's interesting thinking what Hogg is doing next you know for example um, I mean, it's kind of useless to, to, to speculate, but it, it almost sounds like it's a kind of a turn to genre or something. It mm-hmm. sounds like almost kind of like a gothic uh, inflected story, but at the same time, one that returns to the home, which mm-hmm. she's always kind of circling. Um, yeah. And anyway, this is this movie that I guess will come out at some point this year uh, called, what is it called? The, the Eternal Daughter. The Eternal Daughter. It's a great title. Yeah. Which, oh, side note, that reminds me that when I interviewed Maggie Gyllenhaal, about the lost daughter, I said, oh, it sort of made me think of Wanda. She didn't really warm to the comparison. Oh, she didn't? <laughs> no. I thought like, oh, that's everyone knows oh, Wanda. Yeah. It was sort of interesting. I, I should have to go back and like read that again. But I was like, oh, it's really interesting. But anyway, it's, mm-hmm. it's, I don't know. It's, it's really interesting to see what she might be doing next. Yeah, totally. I think, I mean, I just think she's like really a major filmmaker and I'm so excited to talk about her and to get to write this book about her. And I hope, yeah, actually I was, I was talking to Jeff Riker, a filmmaker and, and, and critic and editor, Jeff Riker, um, Mm -hmm. about, about Hogg. And, and he pointed out, you know, that he feels like the first five films, you know, that have come out so far really kind of have an arc to them, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's really interesting. I've been like sort of thinking about that more. Like I, I can see how that would be true. You know, that there's this, there is something that she's doing with autobiography throughout, that seems like it comes to a kind of 
culminating point with the souvenir part too. And yeah, it'll be very interesting to see like what that, you know, what that unlocks in terms of her next, you know, set of films. Yeah. Kind of have one, just one kind of question because I, I, I probably, maybe I've told you, maybe I haven't. I'm a, I'm a grad school dropout. So. Yes, I know this. I love this about you. This is a, aren't you a complete grad school dropout too? I am. Yeah. Yes, I love and, and this. I'm a dropout <laughs> in multiple languages. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious. Is there like a big body of literature on on Hog yet, or I I, I have no, no idea. No, there's not. There's not. I found mm-hmm. one. I found one really brilliant article actually that, mm-hmm. that used the concept of absorption, although in a in a very different way than I do, um, mm-hmm. by this European scholar named Agnes Pentho. That's really the only like sort of scholarly article that I've found, mm-hmm. and you know, and I mean, so many really wonderful, like well written journalistic pieces. It came out especially after uh, you know the souvenir and the souvenir part two, but you know there hasn't really been like a sort of long form examination of her work, which is you know I guess why the editors at Illinois thought I could do it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's so exciting. Yeah, I encourage everyone to keep their eyes peeled for the book. Although, hang tight, because it won't come out till twenty twenty three. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's like a movie, right? You know, it's a long, long calendar. Um, But I I really look forward to reading that. And thanks so much for coming on and talking about it. Thanks, Nick. What a pleasure. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. Please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 